0: Last year, Reuters reporter Brian Groh did something pretty unusual. He contacted a body broker, which, yes, is what it sounds like.
1: And so we sent out some requests in my name with my email address and my company. And indeed, the broker in Tennessee ultimately sold us a spine and two heads.
0: I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And this is not a Halloween story but a real investigation into what happens when people or their loved ones donate a body to science and what comes next. We are going to get to Brian Grow and that story later in the show. But we're going to start with a different kind of story about health insurance. Open enrollment starts November 1st for both folks who get coverage through work or in other ways. That includes people who buy coverage on healthcare.gov or state-run exchanges. And since the Affordable Care Act went into place, the government has spent millions of dollars advertising how to do that. <laughs> ads matter. <laughs> Pinar Karajamandic teaches healthcare care finance at the University of Minnesota. She studied Obamacare TV ads and found that people responded best to ads that had a simple message.
2: Go get enrolled, but also directing them where to get enrolled, like the state-based marketplaces.
0: A government memo from January backs that up. It says paid outreach brought in 37 percent of enrollments. But the Trump administration says the government hasn't gotten the bang for its buck that it wants and slashed outreach money by 90 percent, from $100 million to $10 million. Lori Lotus led outreach for the ACA during the Obama administration. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You ran advertising for the ACA under the Obama administration – Setting politics aside, what is an efficient use of money in terms of how to advertise the ACA? Sure. So what we
3: found was that television was the number one driver of enrollment, which Hmm. was not what we expected. We really thought digital advertising was going to be the most effective thing. But television helps drive all of the other sort of outreach channels that we would use.
0: Do you know who television captured? I would be curious whether that
3: targets older people. So it's interesting because it really has an effect across the board. Our goal was always to get as many people covered as possible, but we did pay special attention to those who are young and healthy, right? The right. 18 to 34-year-olds that really helped strengthen the marketplace because it brings down cost for everybody. We really thought digital advertising was the place to be, but people yeah. still watch television. And I think it's important to recognize the types of programming that we were on, a lot of sports. We were very heavy in NFL center days uh, and play off baseball. Um, and so we were really taking advantage of the programming that even young people would watch. What's the special sauce to reach young people? So the most important thing is making sure that they have the information they need, right? And that's one of the things that's challenging about this year. The cuts that have been made are going to disproportionately impact younger people. How so? They don't have November 1st, the start of open enrollment, penciled in on their calendar. They also don't know when open enrollment ends. The other piece of information that is critical for young people is they don't think that coverage is affordable for them. And so we used our advertising to talk a lot about the financial help that is available. Eight out of 10
0: people qualify for financial help. When you say eight out of 10 people qualify for financial help, can you expand on that a little bit? That's a strikingly high number. So eight out of ten people qualify
3: for financial help that lowers their monthly premiums, so this means that even though your premium might be x, the financial help lowers it to be a certain percentage of your income.
0: One of the things we have seen since the Trump administration announced some of these cuts to the to the outreach budget um, is you know private insurers stepping up running big campaigns. Why not let them step in? After all, it is in their best financial interest to be advertising their product. People don't want to feel like they're being sold something, especially when it comes to health insurance.
3: So they're listening differently when they're hearing from a health insurer than when they're hearing from the federal government. The, the federal government is actually
0: advertising,
3: you know, a product. They're talking about, mar- yeah, yes, they're talking about marketing a product and marketing a service, but
0: they don't have their finger on the scale for what plan you should choose. Hmm. I'd like to get your take on uh, something we've heard from the administration, which is, you know, the Obama administration doubled its advertising budget from $50 million to $100 million, but actually saw slightly lower enrollment uh, over the years where that happened, about 5% lower. What do you say to that? I mean, that's sort of the argument saying we don't need to put as much money behind this
4: anymore.
3: They are cherry-picking the facts. The reality is December 15th last year was the biggest day for enrollment in the history of the Affordable Care Act. The difference was, in the last 10 days, the administration came in and they cut advertising. They cut outreach. They have the data that proves that advertising and outreach is critical to helping
0: people sign up. Lori Lotus, co-founder of Get America Covered, thank you so much. Thank you, Lizzie. It's not just ad money that's changed. The Trump administration cut funding for enrollment helpers called Navigators from $63 million to $37 million. Take Care Utah, the larger of two navigator groups in Utah, had its funding cut by 60 percent this year and had to lay off half its navigators. Other states have seen cuts up to 80 percent, and some states have had no cuts at all. Randall Sear heads the Utah group. Welcome to the show.
5: Absolutely. I'm happy to do it.
0: Can you explain what being a navigator means?
5: They go out into the community and find people that don't have health insurance and help them sign up. And and a lot of the people that they end up working with have never had health insurance before or have a lot of questions about what a premium is or what a deductible is, those sorts of things.
0: Tell me what happened uh, when you found out that the funding for Navigators was going to go down this year.
5: Well, I mean, at first it was, it was just shock. I sat there stunned because it ended up being a 61% cut. Um, and as soon as we got the news, we had to lay off eight people immediately.
0: The administration says that, you know, part of the reduction in funding was based on essentially how well Navigators did the previous year. So if an organization only met 40% of its enrollment target, it would only get 40% of its previous funding.
5: I expected about a 25 percent cut based on how many people we projected to enroll and how many people we actually did enroll. Based on conversations we've had with our corollaries in other states, there's no consistency anywhere.
0: What reason did they give you for
5: your cut? They didn't give any sort of reason.
0: What does that mean in terms of money? Like, where do you put your money when it's tight?
5: We, we used to have a, a pretty substantial budget to pay for ads, to pay for outreach. We don't have that anymore. we have to really spend our grant money that we receive directly on the employees.
0: One criticism from the administration when they look at, say some of the navigators who didn't enroll that many people, five thousand dollars per enrollee those are for the folks who enrolled about a hundred people or less what's the right amount of money to spend targeting each person?
5: right well, I mean, the simple answer is is that I, I kind of reject the premise because. Navigators do so much more than simply help somebody sign up and actually pay their first premium, right? So, for example, we'll, we'll sit down with somebody and help them apply through healthcare.gov. They'll get to the point of looking at the plans that are available to them, and then they say, hey, I need to go home and talk to my spouse about this. And there's other people that give us a call on the phone and they just need to point it pointed in the right direction. There's other people that we encounter in the community that just don't know what they qualify for. Navigators don't just tell people get to the point of actually enrolling. Navigators are the people that help them walk through that process.
0: Randall Sear, director of Take Care Utah at the Utah Health Policy Project. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We reached out to the Department of Health and Human Services for comment on what Sear had to say and this story in general. We got no response by deadline. Republicans in Congress are moving toward a tax overhaul. The House approved a budget resolution with a four-vote margin that opens the door for a tax bill. Areas of focus, corporate tax rates, and 401ks, retirement accounts. Congress has suggested capping the 401k contribution limit to just $2,400 a year. So for this week's five things you need to know, we look at retirement accounts as they stand right now with Laura Adams, host of the Money Girl podcast. Point one, how does investing with a 401k
2: work? A 401k isn't an investment in itself. This is a really confusing point that kind of trips up a lot of people. If you think of it more like a bucket where you hold investments that get special tax treatment, that's a more accurate representation of what's going on. So you control how a 401k is invested And you typically get a pretty large investment menu that includes funds, like mutual funds, index funds, target date funds, exchange-traded funds, etc., to choose from. So you get to choose what investments you want to hold inside the 401k.
0: Point two, what do you do with your 401k when you change
2: jobs? So it's called doing a rollover. When you leave, you can roll over those funds into either an IRA that you control or maybe even into another 401k at your new employer. But the key here is that you get to do that with no taxes and no penalties. So there's no downside to doing a rollover. As we
0: mentioned, Congress is considering a cut to 401k contributions to a maximum of $2,400 per year. Via Twitter, President Trump said this won't happen. So
2: point three, where do things stand right now if you can contribute? So for instance, for this year, for 2017, you can put in $18,000. And the good news is that that limit is going up So it's going up by $500 for 2018. You'll be able to put in a total of $18,500. Always check and make sure that you're maxing out your account each year if you can. And you've always got until December 31 to max out your 401k plan each year. If you're over 50, retirement is a little closer. If you're concerned about changes, what can you do to get ahead? these catch-up contributions are $6,000 for both 2017 and 2018. So that means if you're 50 or older, you can put in $24,000. We should add that right now, anyone contributing
0: to a 401k can do so without paying taxes up front. If Congress's plan goes through, this could change. So are there other options to paying into a 401k? Here's point
2: five you can also have an IRA. That stands for Individual Retirement Arrangement. You can contribute to both types of accounts in the same year. You can even max both a 401k and an IRA out in the same year. However, when you contribute to both types of accounts, some or all of your contributions to a traditional IRA may not be tax deductible. That was Laura
0: Adams, host of the Money Girl podcast. And you can read more on our website, marketplace.org. If you have a financial topic that you'd like explained, send us your five things suggestions. Just email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org. stories in a moment, but first, your comments. Last week, we had writer Elizabeth Dunn on the show talking about the decline of chain restaurants, your TGI Fridays, Applebee's, Buffalo Wild Wings, etc. On Facebook, Timothy Cleveland wrote, The middle class is who frequents these chains. The middle class is squeezed and doesn't have the money to spend. That's why chains like this are dying. For Danny Hall, eating in a restaurant doesn't make sense. I make better food at home for less money, she says. But the final word goes to Lauren Potter. She says chain restaurants are clearly failing because they don't serve avocado toast. Get in touch about anything you hear on the show. Email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org. You can also leave us a voicemail, 1-800-648-5114. And if you're listening to us via podcast, do me a favor. Leave a review. It helps other people find us. Now, a warning. We're about to tackle a subject some listeners may find disturbing. The story we talked about at the top of the show. When someone you love dies, there are many options for what to do with the body. Cremation, burial, or donation to science. But what happens to these donated bodies? An investigation by Reuters looked at this question and found a vast business in body parts. The series is called The Body Trade, and Reuters enterprise correspondent Brian Growe is one of the reporters who worked on it. I asked him how the market for body parts works and what the rules are that govern it.
1: As part of our research, Lizzie, you know, we found following a thorough review of existing laws that there's no federal law governing the private body donation market and few meaningful laws at the state level. Most of the laws that do exist were written for the transplant side of the donation industry. And we're talking here about the non-transplant side, research and education. And so we said, well, given that it appears private brokers are largely left to their own devices to decide what their policies and procedures will be on who they will sell the parts to, why not ask? And so we sent out some requests in my name with my email address and my company. And indeed, the broker in Tennessee ultimately sold us uh, a spine and two heads.
0: You also worked backward and figured out who the spine came from. Who was Cody Saunders and what happened to him?
1: Cody Saunders uh, was a 24-year-old man in Tennessee who lived with his parents, Richard and Angie. We didn't know anything about uh, any of um, the donors of the specimens that we received at first, and it was only because of some unique characteristics of Cody that uh, he passed away at a young age, uh, and we knew the age at death from the documentation Uh, And we knew the date of death. Cody had had some 66 surgeries and more than 1,700 rounds of dialysis in his life. Uh, But when he passed away, as Richard and Angie said, um, they didn't have another choice. And what Richard meant by that is he didn't have the funds for a normal cremation or burial. They had three days to have his body removed from the hospital And it wasn't until the second day that uh, a relative came to them after identifying uh, the body broker, Restore Life, and said, you know, this is an option because it comes with a free cremation.
0: What did they think was going to happen to him?
1: They made an erroneous assumption that there would just be skin samples. And at one point, Richard said fluid taken. But that's not the case. The consent form says that the broker has sole discretion to decide what uh, they will take and to whom they will distribute it. And unlike most other consent forms from brokers that we reviewed, and we reviewed uh, more than a dozen, this particular one did not say that there would be, uh, to use the industry term, disarticulation of the body, the removal of head, arms, and legs. So. They didn't have a full understanding. So a body broker
0: can just turn around and sell the parts?
1: They can. That's the business model. When there are gaps in regulation in a market, in a niche, you know, entrepreneurs will identify the opportunity and uh, take advantage of it for as long as possible. Um, in this case, you know, it is not illegal to sell non-transplant body parts. And so that's what's happening.
0: How big is this industry?
1: The data is really hard to come by. You know, despite the fact that there are a substantial number of firms, uh, some of them now quite large. Um, one, the largest broker, is receiving well over five thousand bodies a year. There's a lack of data on who's in the business, how many bodies they get, uh, and how many parts they distribute and what they're paid for it. We determined that in the last five years, the private market has received at least uh, 50,000 bodies and distributed uh, close to 200,000 parts. But those are almost certainly conservative figures because they're cobbled together from just a handful of states, four in total.
0: For a for little context, uh, I know this sounds a bit macabre, but what did a spine cost you, and, and how does that compare to an intact body?
1: The spine cost $300 plus shipping. Uh, the heads cost $300 plus, plus shipping, but the shipping cost was a little higher. Uh, the rate for a whole body, based on uh, price lists, Price quotes and actual sales that um, we compiled in the course of the research from seven different brokers uh, is three to five thousand dollars, but it all depends um, how quickly the client needs it. It may cost more if the client is a frequent buyer. Then they may get bulk discounts. So it's like any other business, I mean, what we're talking about here is the commodification of the human body.
0: There is a, an inherent tension in this, right? If, if there are good actors who are using cadavers or body parts for scientific research that, let's say, down the road saves lives, but bad actors abusing or misusing bodies, how do we know? Is there any way to know?
1: There's no way to know. Um, to give you an example, we identified more brokers who have operated in the market than the brokers that we have interviewed even knew about. In hmm. other words, firms would pop up on the radar and established players would go, who's that? And you know, we would say, well, they operate from this funeral home uh, in Colorado or um, they you know, formed the firm with an address at their house and we're going to use the garage in Pennsylvania. There's an utter lack of transparency in the broker market. Uh, and so we don't know who's getting bodies and what they're ultimately doing with them. This is vitally important to research and education, without question. But we can do this right. And right begins with clear rules and transparency about who's in the business and how they go about acquiring and then distributing on the body parts
0: Brian Grow is an enterprise correspondent with Reuters and we've got a link to his series, The Body Trade, on our website marketplace.org. Brian, thank you Thank you, Lizzie A different story about regulation. Cutting federal
1: regulations
0: is a big item on the to-do list of Republican politicians in Congress.
1: Ending the culture of overregulation. It's going to take more than a few months. But we have made a good start.
0: And in the White House.
1: Since taking office, I've signed one action after another to eliminate job-killing regulations that stand in a way.
0: That was President Trump and Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. But how did we become a regulatory state in the first place? That's what Chrissy Clark from our Wealth and Poverty desk is exploring in the new season of Marketplace's documentary podcast, The Uncertain Hour. Today, Chrissy brings us the story of how one homemaker's life
4: collided with a growing regulation of something very basic, food. By the time Ruth Desmond was a grandmother in the 1970s, she'd earned a reputation as a powerful consumer activist in our nation's capital. Newspapers called her the, quote, terror of Washington, who spit in the corporate eye. (laughs) She did, but nicely. (laughs) Ruth Desmond died in 1988 in her 80s. But this woman with the laugh, (laughs) Janet Swagger, knew her well, way before Ruth was a grandmother or a food activist. I'm her angel of
6: a daughter. She always called me her angel. (laughs)
4: Janet was Ruth's only child. They were always close. Apparently, they had the same laugh. And growing up in the 1950s, Janet spent a lot of time with her mom in the kitchen of their small brick house in Arlington, Virginia. Janet still lives there now. She's 76. When you look at this room and picture your mom, what would she be doing in it? Where would she be?
6: Oh, she'd be busy with her blender or her bread maker. You know, her her oven would have a roast in it. My father always said he'd know that mother was ready to do him in if she served him a meal out of a box.
4: And that was only kind of a joke. Ruth really did see food and cooking as matters of life and death because of something that happened in 1955. Ruth's husband, Gordon, Janet's dad. Had come down with bladder cancer. He was young, in his 40s.
6: I remember him going in for surgeries and all, and we'd go visit at the hospital.
4: Before one surgery, Janet remembers, the doctors were talking about the general anesthesia they were going to use on her dad. Her mom overheard them and explained that he'd had a bad reaction to it in an earlier surgery.
6: Stopped his heart for three minutes.
4: Ruth said instead of general anesthesia, he needed a spinal block. But the doctors ignored her.
6: So she actually rode the gurney into the surgical room. (laughs) laying across his body, saying you will not give him anesthesia. That's the kind of person That's she the was. the kind of person she was. She was determined. So there you go. That was how she looked at everything. As for Janet's dad's cancer. Fortunately, he got most of it out. Cut cut a lot of it out. But um, mother then wanted it to stay out because bladder cancer is one of those that can reoccur.
4: And so Ruth started reading up on the latest science about cancer and its potential causes, which led her to these studies on... The potential role of chemical additives and pesticide
2: residues in food.
4: Angie Boyce is a bioethicist at Johns Hopkins who's written about Ruth Desmond. She says Ruth started looking into the emerging science about these new chemicals that, in the last few decades, food manufacturers were adding to food, and studies that linked some of them to cancer in lab animals... The science was still uncertain, but it raised questions for Ruth about how safe the food was that she was feeding her family. And more importantly, who was supposed to be in charge of figuring out what was safe? And so... At that point, and I think, you know, this is so, like, this is so Ruth Desmond. She calls the FDA. (laughs) They're named the Food and Drug Administration, after all. So Ruth wants to know what they're doing about these chemicals. And they tell her, if you're interested in this, why don't you, you know, you're local. She was in Arlington, Virginia, remember, just down the road from the FDA. Why don't you attend this hearing we're going to have on food additives? And so Ruth does. The FDA was having these hearings on food additives because at the time, food was in the middle of a complete transformation, prompted by... America goes to war. Peter Hutt teaches food and drug law at Harvard. Since the 1960s, he's been a lawyer for some of the biggest food companies around.
7: During World War II, the food science industry went to work and totally changed the American food supply because they were making food to feed our troops all over the world. So that's how the food supply began to change. It became to be a processed Food, an engineered food, if you will.
4: When the war ended, the two biggest industries left standing in America were the chemical industry and the food industry.
2: People were experimenting with
4: all sorts of chemicals used to preserve foods. Suzanne Junod is a historian at the FDA. Honestly, no one knew if they were safe or not, in what amounts they might or might not be safe. And then, in early November of 1959, just before Thanksgiving, This happened.
6: We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin.
4: The FDA announced that inspectors had discovered a crop of cranberries contaminated with a weed killer known to cause cancer in animals. According to federal regulations, farmers were supposed to spray the chemical long enough before harvest that it had time to wear off the berries. But apparently some bogs got sprayed too late. This was especially jarring for Ruth, Janet
6: says, because... Father liked her to make her famous cranberry jelly from
4: scratch. The government made a public announcement, warned that if you didn't know exactly where your cranberries came from, this year you should keep them off the Thanksgiving table. And the nation freaked out. Overnight, cranberries disappeared from store shelves. Some states banned the sale of cranberries altogether. Janet remembers her mom reading about it all in the paper. It was a scandal.
6: They had sprayed the cranberries, and here they are laying out in the grocery stores. And then you find out what they've done to the food before it even gets to the grocery store. And she said, oh, my God, you know, I'm, I'm killing my husband when I think I'm trying to help him.
8: Cranberry, Cranberry Cranberry
4: Housewives panicked about what to do without their favorite holiday condiment. This song hit the airwaves about the brand new worry all over the nation.
8: All cranberry got a foot nation.
4: But the FDA got blamed for overreacting. Richard Nixon and JFK, both running for president, Clouded government warnings and very publicly consumed cranberries on the campaign trail. Cranberry growers argued that people would have to eat carloads of cranberries for the pesticide residue to do any harm, and hanged an FDA official in effigy. But while lots of Americans were cursing the FDA, Ruth was cheering. And said, I'm going to do something about this. And when there were cranberry hearings in 1959, an organization she'd recently co-founded, the Federation of Homemakers, made a statement defending how the FDA handled the situation, condemning those in the cranberry industry whose, quote, sole concern seems to be a financial one. But this was only a dress rehearsal for something much bigger in Ruth Desmond's future as a consumer activist. Ruth first got wind of this thing when she was sitting in an FDA office and noticed something on the desk. An announcement sparked by a covert action the FDA had recently executed on behalf of peanut butter. That was Marketplace's Chrissy Clark. You can listen to The Uncertain
0: Hour, and man, I really recommend it at our website marketplace.org or wherever you get your podcasts. There is, as we know, a big economy of people who make their money on YouTube and others who watch their cooking videos, makeup tutorials, etc. To be honest, I thought it was really for people under 30. Turns out, not so much anymore.
2: I started watching makeup videos and reviews on YouTube because I had a bad experience uh, in high-end makeup and beauty stores.
0: That's Angela Wright. She's 59, lives in Dallas. She used to get skincare recommendations at the cosmetics counter,
2: but the products didn't really work for her. And I ended up with a lot of jars full of a lot of things that did not work for my skin.
0: That is when she found help online from women her own age.
2: hi i'm beth welcome to my new channel 50 plus beauty i've been here about three months on youtube and And today i am talking about makeup over 50 well beauty over 50 welcome to 60 and me and to my makeup uh, demonstration today we refer to that part of the industry as
0: mature beauty audience that's jackie paulino from pixability a company that makes and researches ads on social media Paulino says what her group calls mature beauty, her words not ours, is part of something massive on social media. So the beauty industry is huge and continuing to grow. On YouTube specifically, it's 222 billion views across beauty and personal care on YouTube. It is, you know, bigger than fashion as well as consumer electronics. Video game and music videos are still the most watched, but according to Pixability, Mature Beauty has the fastest-growing audience of the whole beauty video category. So that audience is um, growing really fast. It's actually outpacing the normal um, market. It has um, reached 104 million monthly views in in 2017. Which, by Paulino's count, is nearly four times higher than the monthly views in the rest of the beauty video world. What Paulino and her group have seen is that people like Angela Wright want advice— on anti-aging skincare, Botox and fillers, ways to use concealer so it doesn't get all cakey and wrinkles. You know things that younger YouTubers might not even think about.
9: I started getting feedback from people that they were using my skincare routine, all the same stuff, would buy the exact same thing, and they were sending me these comments and private emails and everything. Oh my gosh, you've you've changed my skin. My skin is the best it's been in years.
0: That's Angie Schmidt. She runs a YouTube channel called Hot and Flashy. Yes, it is what it sounds like, a beauty and lifestyle channel for people over 50. It started five years ago and did not come screaming out of the gates.
9: It was, in the very beginning, it was like the crickets were chirping and nobody was watching because people in my age group just don't consider YouTube a vehicle for them. Um, So there wasn't a lot of feedback, but the feedback that I did get for the occasional person who happened to find me was Oh my God, I can't believe there's someone out here who's doing this. You go, girl, do more. But
0: now Schmidt's channel has 250,000 subscribers. This is her full-time job. And an influencer with Schmidt's audience size can make as much as six figures. I asked Schmidt how profitable her channel is.
9: It can actually be fairly lucrative. I definitely make enough to buy everything that I need to buy to show people you know, all the makeup and all the skincare and all the procedures that they want to see, and then to have some profit left over, you know, at the end of the day so that it's a business and I can live on it.
0: One of the things I find really interesting is that you tend to use affiliate links and marketing rather than sponsored posts. Can you explain that decision and kind of how the monetary end of that works?
9: Sure. Um, Well, on YouTube specifically, there are kind of three revenue streams. So one is the ads that they run over your videos. You make money on those. And then there's the affiliate links, as you mentioned. And those are when you link directly to a product in your video. Uh, then people can click on that link and go over and buy it. So and, if you
0: say, I really like this cream, and yes. here's a you know link for it at Sephora?
9: Yep. So that really goes into the becoming an influencer part, is that when I really like something, then people do tend to go out and buy it. Uh, as you said, the third revenue stream, which is sponsorships, um, I don't really tend to do a lot of just because um, I think people in my generation are much more mistrustful and suspicious of things on the internet, I think. And so if you're taking sponsorships, which is basically a, a paid commercial for a product, you know, then people tend to not trust your opinion. And unfortunately, you know, I just did a sponsored video for a product, and I had a few people who unsubscribed because they were like, "Well, hmm. now you've gone commercial. I can't watch you anymore." And I'm like, "But, but, but, I make a hundred videos a year, and I only took one sponsorship this year. So, you know, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater." But that's why I rely much more on affiliate uh, commissionable links.
0: And what percentage do you make, say, on an affiliate link? You know, if I go buy an eye cream somewhere, what do you make off of that?
9: Um, It's all over the map. Probably the low end is about 2%. The high end is about 15 to 20%. But Hmm. that's uh, pretty rare to get that much. It's usually around 8 to 10%, I'd say, on average.
0: Okay, so I have to let you in on a staff debate that we were having. Um, I'm 41. My senior producer is also in her early 40s. And one of our younger staffers put put this on the calendar. as like, Elder YouTube or mature beauty, or and we b- both of us, of course, you know, screamed bloody murder about it. Um, because it was well over 35 is the mature beauty, you know, right. industry. What do we call this? We need a name for it. What's your commercial name for this? Do you think?
9: Oh, I don't even know. That's a tough one. Um, I, I would like us to be mature, like. Over forty, maybe, or over forty five yeah. should be mature. I think if you're thirty five, like technically you're a mature person, but as debatable, far as skin, but okay. As far as yeah, as far as skincare and makeup, you're still young, you still, you know, have great skin, you still don't have much to worry about as far as anti aging. Uh but yeah, it's interesting. I kinda wish there was a differentiation between thirty five you know, to 45 versus 45 and over or 60 and over because vastly different in each, like every 10 years makes a huge difference in your skin and, you know, how you can use makeup and everything.
0: Well, you know, thinking about this from a business perspective and a marketing perspective, look forward for me a little bit. Do, do you think we're going to see a time on YouTube or other, frankly, you know, internet platforms and channels Where there are more people like you, where there is more adoption, where maybe the initially digitally native generation, you know, is using this stuff or whatever the replacement is as Mm -hmm. time goes on.
9: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's why we're seeing so many over 35 beauty vloggers and YouTubers now and gurus because they started 10 years ago in their 20s and now they're in their 30s and in 10 years they're going to still be doing it. They're going to be in their 40s and their audience will just go with them. So as as the audience ages, you know, the whole category will become bigger. And of course, you know, every year that goes by, more and more people who are currently mature, you know, over 50, are getting more comfortable with social media and technology, and they are coming more around to it.
0: That was Angie Schmidt, who runs the YouTube channel and blog, Hot and Flashy. Got thoughts on this? Send us an email. We're weekend at marketplace.org. In another part of the tech world, there's a type of retail that blends e-commerce with old-school mail-order subscription services. A box. At this point, there's not much you can't subscribe to and get a box of. Meals, collectibles, Korean snack food, and, of course, apparel from services like Stitch Fix, which recently filed to go public. It's one of the first of these box companies to do so. The other big one is Blue Apron, and we'll get to why that matters in a moment – but first, a closer look at Stitch Fix. Before you get your box of clothes, you fill out an online profile. That profile goes to a human stylist, who then sends you several outfits you'll love. Or at least outfits the company hopes you'll love. I got home, super excited to see the package outside my door. That's Erica Gross, a teacher from Denver. She first tried Stitch Fix about a year ago. Her co-workers were already fans, and when she got her first box, it felt like a present.
4: Well, almost like a present. Tried on all the clothes, didn't love anything, liked one of the shirts, and decided to keep it. The first box was
0: a little meh. Gross's co-worker said, hey, try it again, the service gets better.
4: And six boxes later... I love the convenience. I like having
2: someone else help me pick out clothing, give me ideas about how to wear the clothes, and it saves me time not having to go
0: shopping at the mall. Liz Cadman founded My Subscription Addiction, a blog that reviews subscription boxes. She started five years ago and has seen the industry balloon. Cadman is optimistic about Stitch Fix and is willing to bet that the future of shopping is going to
2: involve these services. This is very much um, a new way to shop, uh, and this is the new way to discover products when. Otherwise, if I, if I want a book or if I want something, I go to Amazon, I type in exactly what I want, and I buy it. I'm not finding other cool products that could be great for me along the way. Now, a word of caution in the form of meal
0: kit company Blue Apron. It went public last June, but less than six months later, the stock price is half where it was at the IPO. And the company announced it would cut 6% of its
2: workforce. So what happened? One thing when I think of Blue Apron is that they and Plated and HelloFresh All started around the same time and have been growing around the same rate. So they really have been dominating, trying to fight
0: each other for that uh, market share. According to Cadman, the problem is that there was too much competition for Blue Apron.
7: When we look at the future of the model itself, we begin to recognize that there isn't room for tons of these. There are room for many, but not unlimited numbers.
0: That's Marshall Cohen. He's chief retail analyst at the market research company NPD Group. Cohen isn't a subscription box pessimist, but kind of the opposite. He sees boxes as a way for established retail companies to, you know, modernize.
7: Today, the consumer loves the convenience of online. They love the surprise element of the box model, but they also love the ability to be able to discover new products. And that's an important component. So traditional retail is going to adapt this model as well.
8: And
0: that means an already crowded market is going to get more crowded. But instead of Stitch Fix just going head to head with other fashion startups, it'll have to compete with Nordstrom's, Macy's, companies that already have reputations.
7: You know, if I subscribe to a small brand that's now going to deliver on the promise of giving me a package of product, uh, I might tend to believe that the bigger stores, the more established institutions, can handle it better.
0: Cohen says the fashion industry is worth $222 billion, and box services count for roughly a billion of that. That means in order to get bigger, businesses like Stitch Fix probably need to evolve. So does that mean we might see brick-and-mortar stores?
7: Very likely we might. When we look at a lot of the larger, successful online retailers and the pure play retailers, they're opening up retail outlets. They're opening up stores. So look at somebody like a Warby Parker. Look like somebody at an Amazon. Look at somebody like a Bonobos. Uh, and you begin to sit there and see they're creating retail presence.
0: So what about you? you a box addict, box opponent? Let us know. We're on Twitter at Marketplace WKND, and you can email us weekend at marketplace.org. We all have financial lives, but what do they look like when you're in the public eye? That's where the Marketplace Quiz comes in, when authors, musicians, other creative people share their thoughts on money.
8: Hi, I'm Rivers. And I'm Brian. And we're in the band Weezer. Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you blank. Um, it can pay for the private plane to your gig, so you don't have to do a bus tour Or a van tour, and um, I just saw SpaceX is going to make this rocket, or they they have the rocket, but they're going to set it up so that you can get like from LA to Tokyo in 24 minutes or something. So we're going to be the first band to tour on the SpaceX rocket. That's our goal. It's going to be the touring is going to be crazy. First band on Mars, Weezer. You heard it here first. In the next life, what would your career be? I think an architect. Yeah, and you—you uh, you have a great house and great furniture. You're kind of an amateur interior designer. I'm an amateur interior. Got designer. Got great personal style. <laughs> it's um, all—it's
1: all—it's all connected, you know. It's—I guess I, I got interested first in house architecture by delivering food um, in Laurel Canyon uh, way back in the early '90s, and I got to go into some of these houses, and, and I had no idea that uh, a house could cause you know actually a feeling of creative space it was it was a good job delivering food you're on your own and you think a lot
8: i delivered pizza for domino's um (laughs) and on new year's eve i got a twenty dollar tip and i i've never forgotten that it's just made my life uh rivers how have you seen the business of your music change over the past few years past few years or like from when we started from when we started I don't know. I'm not really focused on the business. Um, my business is <laughs> writing songs and playing shows, and it's pretty much the same as it was when we started in 1992. In fact, it's very similar to how it was when I started in ninth grade in <laughs> 1984. Um, I guess now, I never would have never would have guessed that I'd spend so much time sitting at a computer all day right. as a musician. I don't think anybody um, thought that. Yeah, but you know, I guess when I was a kid, I thought computers were cool, so I'd probably be happy about it.
5: Rivers, this is a good question, I think.
8: What
1: advice do you wish someone gave you before you started your career?
8: Um, well, I don't know if I could have heard it, but I think, I wish I could have heard it if somebody told me, look, you don't have to be so miserable and depressed and feel so hopeless. Like, you're gonna make it you're gonna be fine just you're doing great put one foot in front of the other and things are gonna work out and there's just so much self-doubt and pain uh in in the early days and it was all for nothing yeah it
1: would be nice to have some sage come and say yeah you guys are gonna make it everything's gonna be just fine but you know it's part of the struggle and you know life in general right
0: That was Brian Bell from Weezer along with his bandmate Rivers Cuomo. Their new album is Pacific Daydream, and that marketplace quiz was produced by Haley Hirschman. If you want to check out some past quizzes, go to our website, marketplace.org, and just search for the marketplace quiz. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen and Eliza Mills with help this week from Sean McHenry. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Satara Nieves is Marketplace's executive producer. Deborah Clark is our vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.